welcome to our latest podcast of the Media and Journalism Society at the University of East London. Today we are joined by Tony Sampson, Dr. Tony Sampson that is, who is a reader in Digital Media Cultures at UEL and our other guest who is a regular by the way. Hello everyone, my name is Anna Bong and I am Margaret. So, to start with Dr. Tony Sampson, can you give us a brief introduction about yourself? Okay. Hello, everyone, by the way. Wonderful to be here. Um, okay, so I wear a number of hats around the university. You just mentioned that I'm a, a reader, so I'm kind of research active, so I see myself as something of a, an academic author. But as well as that, I'm also um, involved in community engagement projects. I'm a member of uh, an organisation called the Cultural Engine Research Group, which is based wide remit actually we start in South East Essex all the way into East London running community engagement events and I also and this is where I know you guys I, I lead the the MA in media communication industries and uh, I also teach across the undergraduate and I run PhDs and uh, professional doctorates as well when I say I run them I, I supervise them so. <laughs> many hats indeed all right Tony I'm particularly interested about um, areas of your research could you tell us a bit about the focus of your research and also your research interests, what you're currently working on? Can yeah, you just okay. tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, similar to the many hats I wear as a person, my research has a, a number of uh, foci, I think, what it is. So going back to my PhD, so a bit of a story here. I was, <laughs> my original PhD was about computer viruses. I was just interested because I was studying digital culture in a sociology department. But a, a colleague of mine, who I know quite well now, and I've covered all a number of things, uh, I'd never met him at this particular point. I think it was 2004. And he contacted me by email and said, oh, we're doing the same PhD. So um, I, I suddenly thought, oh dear, I can't be doing the same as somebody else. And he was due to finish before me. So there was a, a moment of panic when I had to sort of think, oh, right, I can't just do computer viruses, what else do I do? And it was my supervisor at the time, former lecturer here, Tiziana Terranova, turned around to me and said, um, well, if, why don't you look at contagion more, more widely, more generally? You know, there's quite a strong tradition in sociology about contagion theory. And she introduced me to a, a French sociologist who was pretty much there right from the get-go, actually, with the invention of social sciences, uh, called Gabriel Tard. And uh, Gabriel Tard... If you read his books, he's got a, his general thesis was something we call the Society of Imitation. And uh, his theory is really all about the way that you know, society is almost made of contagion, right? So um, I thought, hang on, this sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I got really into that, and I ended up eventually publishing the work I did for my PhD. It wasn't a PhD I published, it was a, the work based on that, called Virality, which was really just bringing up to date the kind of ideas from sociology and applying them to network cultures today. So that's how I started. Since then, I've been publishing lots of uh, different books, looking at all kinds of things. Um, I was really interested in this contagion theory, and in the second book, I started looking around what we call neurocultures, and that's really the relationship between the brain and culture, and particularly the brain sciences and culture. I was really interested in the way that neurosciences begin to expand into non-medical areas, I was reading a lot of stuff about neuromarketing at the time, but other attempts to sort of, you know, improve or, or maximise work efficiency by using kind of ideas borrowed from the neurosciences. Uh, that led me into more uh, thinking around the role of emotions, which you might know because I do quite a lot in my, my lectures. You know, the whole kind of way that media now is orientating more towards affect, emotions and feelings 
than it is necessarily those kind of cognitive uh, faculties and capacities that we 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 normally approached it by. Okay, so that's that's that research, and I can talk a little bit later about the uh, my latest book, perhaps. But also, I run a, 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 a big international uh, conference here at UEL. Um, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we did the last one. I say unfortunately, we, we actually managed to run one, but we run it online. So we're up to our fifth, but we called the fifth one 4.5 because I didn't think online deserved to be called the fifth one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so hopefully we'll be getting that back together for, for next year, I hope. That's the, that's the plan. And that's all based around affect theory, which is another one of part of my interests. And we also published a, a book in 2018 on an edited collection based on one of the conferences called Affect and Social Media. Quite interesting. Could you tell us more about your latest book that you've written? It's called A Sleepwalker's Guide to Social Media. Tell us more about that. Yeah, okay. Uh, before we started, gave you a little bit of an anecdote, but I will tell you a little bit more about that. So I was busy reviewing uh, a book for a publisher, which was about virality. Obviously, they pick on people who've got kind of expert knowledge, say who it is by, obviously. But um, it wasn't a particularly good manuscript. There's a couple of colleagues who were looking at it. We both felt it was quite weak. And um, the publisher wanted a book on social media and, and contagion and virality and said, well, look, you know... If, <laughs> If this book isn't uh, good enough, and we've had fewer reviewers say so, can you please write one for us? So uh, it's an unusual start to a book because, um, as, I, as I said earlier, you know, I, I tend to spend quite a long time in the planning stage. You know, a book takes roughly four years, so there's a, a, a big sort of time when you just keep collecting material, thinking about how you're going to approach it before you even start putting pen to paper as such. So that was a bit of an unusual start to that. It's interesting because the first two books definitely related to each other and the third one sort of forms part of a trilogy. Mm. So it continues this theme around contagion, around emotions. So I can talk you through a little bit about what what it is. I mean, it's against the backdrop of a really kind of a a turbulent time. Massive, you know, political instability. Brexit in this country, uh, Donald Trump, Cambridge Analytica, a whole wave of rather negative, rather depressing stories and you know an, an, an unfolding narrative about social media i think prior to cambridge analytica people were called paranoid if they thought you know that uh, there's still that kind of manipulation going on mm-hmm. i think they just revealed exactly how powerful the manipulation can be you know potentially uh, uh, shifting a, a you know an election result so that was a that was a backdrop uh, if you remember also and it's still prevalent of course during the pandemic there's a, a, a wave of, of, of contagion of fake news, misinformation across the spectrum as well, not, not just America or, or UK. Yeah, I, I did some work in the book around um, Nigeria and Kenya, actually, mm-hmm. the elections there and the possible involvement of, of Cambridge Analytica in, in two elections there. Also Brazil, another really interesting example where uh, people were using WhatsApp to manipulate the vote in many ways with fake news. So coming from my area of uh, interest of, uh, of emotions, I, I thought one thing about computing is it's very logical. It's very positivistic. It's, um, you know, it's brutal judgments. It's truth. You know, it's the logical kind of statement. But in some ways, that is the thing that propagates the fake news. The, you know, the, there's this old sort of uh, thing around logic, that logic you know, is, is quite fallible. And I thought, actually, you know, fake news hasn't got a lot to do with logic. Logic is part of the problem. But what spreads fake news is the kind of more feely, a- a- emotional part of it. 
you know, if someone sees some news, it's not whether they're going to think it's true or false in that kind of logical sense. It's whether they feel something about it. And that's why they pass it on. So um, the first chapter is called Feeling Facts and Fakes. Really arguing that you can't just discern, discern between true and false using computing. You know, you have to use something different for that, almost like an aesthetic sense, you know, something where there isn't necessarily a kind of truth, uh, you know, apparent in, 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 in the thing that you're looking at. I mean, the rest of the, the book picks up uh, this idea of a sleepwalker. I mentioned Gabriel Tard at the beginning. Gabriel Tard was this sort of, you know, grandfather of, of sociology, and he used this conceptual persona of the sleepwalker. This was the kind of a social being who imitated the, uh, you know, the, the habits, words of the, of the person next to them and how society kind of spread like that. And it's almost like we're awake and we're walking around, but we're copying people. We don't really know we're doing it. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of, it's, it's kind of unconscious, not really unconscious, because we're, we're obviously doing it and we're walking. So this, this sleepwalker persona becomes kind of you know, really important to him. And so what I did with virality, I took forward his uh, theories around contagion. All I did this time was reinvented the kind of uh, the sleepwalker or a somnambulist, as he calls it, into the network age. So um, really, that's why the book's called A Sleepwalker's Guide to Social Media. Okay, so I've had the opportunity to, well, look through the book and listening to you, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are you of the opinion that we are just a product of our emotions? Right, okay. Not, not quite, right? And I'm going to start with a little bit of a lecture here. <laughs> so, one, one of the one of the key things in affect theory is that emotions, feelings, and affect are not the same thing. So you, you've got to watch when you kind of generalise about you know is it just about emotion? Right, actually, let's 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 add four terms here. Cognition. Firstly, cognition is usually that narrow part of consciousness that we use for things like memory, recall, attention, perception. According to popular science now, that that is actually quite a small part of what actually happens in the brain. Okay. That, that part of consciousness. I mean, some people give it, you know, about 20, 80, the 80% being non-conscious, right? Not unconscious, non-conscious. Okay. That's the brain doing other things that we're just not conscious of. So cognition exists in that very small area. We think of feelings as different from emotions and affect in a sense that they're kind of sensation. If you get a feeling of, say, anger, it's going to be a sensation that you feel. I was telling you about an email I just got earlier. <laughs> Straight away I got that, that, that sensation. But that sensation is labelled as well, so there's an also a kind of a, a, a autobiographical kind of notion to it. I feel that sensation of anger but i know it's anger because i've had it before so you build up almost this sort of you know, database of, of feelings that you have then emotions emotions are the broadcast of of that feeling so if you think about someone who's angry and you see them ex, you know their face expression or expressing anger the, the emotion then is the broadcasting of a sensation so it's more of a process than a the general term so that, that's the broadcast affect is the difficult one affect is, is, is has been defined as the kind of the intensity that comes before the sensation. You get that sensation of feeling ang- anger, but it, there's been something that affected you by the reading of the email, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's the intensity. Then it kind of formulates into the sensation, which becomes the feeling, and then it's broadcast as an emotion. Just to complicate your question, do I think it's all about uh, emotions? Yeah, but you know, within that kind of context. Yeah. So I think probably what I was talking about in terms of affective contagion, for example is really the effect of, of a kind of collective dynamic you have on social media, right? So liking, passing on, posting. Mm-hmm. You can't really look at that as an individual user experience. It's, it's more of a collective user experience. 
So if you think about those emotions, feelings and affects, the way you know, the relationships I've just described, how that plays itself out in a kind of collective sense, you know, rather than just thinking about one person becoming upset about something. You know, a contagion isn't just one person. A contagion is a relationship between all those different people as it passes around. That's the kind of vile metaphor. Well, this is so interesting and very thought-provoking, yeah. if I have to say so. Um, I want to digress a bit from what you've said, but still keeping in line with social media. As we know, you know, freedom of expression is something that we enjoy in many countries, but some countries don't provide that freedom. So countries and governments like China have regulations and restrictions against social media. What is your take on these kinds of regulations on social media content and social media usage as well as freedom of expression? I think there's a, a, a bit of a flip side to this. Of, of course, I'm not in favour of any kind of censorship of political expression and the freedom to say what you want politically. Um, so, I'm a, you know, I'm personally totally uh, opposed to any kind of censorship of that kind. But the flip side, I think, and this is the, one of the main problems with social media and why it's not particularly a good place for the democratic debate, for example, is that, you know, there are kind of limits, aren't there, to freedoms of expression. And I think quite often, particularly companies like Facebook, have hidden behind this kind of freedom of expression, the freedom to say what you want, to really not clear up their networks of, for example, and this is one of the main themes I pick up in this Sleepwalkers Guide, race hate. There are so many examples, and it's not just on um, uh, Facebook, you know, it's, it's, it's on YouTube, where people have complained about content, particularly violent race hate. Yeah. And it's not been taken down for, you know, in some cases, over a year. They're using this kind of excuse, well, no, you know, we, we have to let people say their, say their thing, have their freedom of expression. But they're not taking editorial responsibility and, uh, and, and removing that stuff. Another thing they do as well, getting off the subject a little bit, but they, rather than self-regulate, they rely on things like AI. Mm. Right? And they yeah. say, AI is going to sort out the problem. We've got our best programmers working with AI technology. And the truth is, a lot of that AI just doesn't work. A lot of the, it's like antiviral software, you know, a lot of it doesn't function. There's always a way of getting through the back door. Yeah. It plainly doesn't work because um, the, the material's still there. And this is something also covered in the Sleepwalker's Guide, is there's a tendency then, if the, if the technology doesn't work, is to farm out the cleaning up of the networks to third-party countries, you know, agencies, where people are working ridiculous hours for ridiculous money, looking at the most obscene kind of abuse and horrific thing with no kind of you know work regulation or so it, it's it's an ugly business actually. There's a brilliant documentary called The Cleaners. I don't know mm. if you've ever seen it, but I'd recommend anyone watching it. It's about farming out social media cleaning to uh, the Philippines. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, I think I've seen it. Yeah, there's been a, quite a few documentaries around that, but Cleaners is a is a really good one. So, you know, in, in response to that, yeah, I mean, censorship is a bad thing, but then, you know, there's a flip side to that in the sense that uh, freedom of expression is being used as a bit of an excuse. Yeah. Okay, I would really like to take on Tony, you know, on that, but because of um, time constraints, I'm just going to go straight to the next question. From your experience and your researches, observations, what, in your opinion, is the future of social media? Okay. In, in, in my area of work, we call looking into the future, futurology. Okay. Uh, many years ago when I started doing this, it was right at the very beginning when we were still using CD-ROM. And the internet had been about, but it was so low bandwidth that you couldn't really get any content on there. And there was a huge debate around the time around media convergence. What, what platform were these uh, different social media types going to appear on? So 
everyone put their money into CD-ROMs. A little bit later, the internet became you know a bigger bandwidth, mm. so you could get more stuff on there. The technology started getting faster. But nobody, as far as I know, and I'd like to go back, and there used to be this famous diagram about where it's all going to converge, what technology. Nobody at the time said the mobile phone. Or did they say, you know, the tablet? It was always so it was going to be interactive television or, you know, this sort of weird other thing that nobody knew about. But telephones are always kind of outside the box, actually. So uh, I try not to get involved in futurology for that very reason. <laughs> I would repeat, though, the kind of things that I've just said in the previous question, actually, that the future needs to be about some debate around how to do democracy and, and, and things like freedom of expression, how to do that in the kind of environment we've got. And I, I think that probably involves some sort of regulation yeah. of social media. Okay. Maybe it has to be a, a global regulation in a similar way to they're taxing the, um, the tech companies now because it, I don't think it will work at a national level. There was a debate around the, um, the Brazilian election, around the, the virality of, of WhatsApp. I can't remember, it was a university in, in Brazil and, an, and a, a kind of freedom organisation got together and gave Facebook a whole kind of raft of suggestions in ways it could reduce the virality of WhatsApp groups. I mean, just, just simple tinkering, like making a limit on how big a group could be, how many messages could be sent out. And that way they might have stopped some of you know, the spread of fake news during, during the election, I think it was in 2018. Facebook completely ignored that. They were apparently, you know, under pressure themselves because the American elections were, were looming. In the end, under pressure, Facebook just shut down something like 100,000 accounts. Bang, overnight. If it listened to that report and, and, and looked at clever ways of you know, reducing the, the impact of, of, of contagions of fake news, mm. then I, I think, you know, we would have seen less kind of race hate spreading on, the, on, the, on those networks. Well... Bringing it all together and everything that we have discussed, bring it all home. You are a reader. You are someone who is a teacher by profession. You're basically teaching lots of students um, about social media, creative industries, digital media cultures. What kind of advice do you have for our students who want to work in creative industries and social media? How should they do it, according to you? Okay, I'm... One of my lines to the students, uh, especially around social media, is that you're in a very unique position because unlike older generations, particularly my generation, but even, even younger than me, we don't understand it. You, you've kind of bought, been brought up with it. You understand it to such an extent that I think that's where you can exploit it and innovate. Mm-hmm. I, was, uh, I do a, a lecture around a company, a social chain, a Manchester company, and they, they are doing huge uh, accounts for uh, FIFA, football, some really big clients. And they're, they're predominantly a young group of people. And they're, they're doing things because they know, for example, about how to make things go viral. Yeah. You know, they've, they've got some sense of it. If you read their, um, uh, their, their blurb, it's not dissimilar to one of my lectures. You know, it talks a lot about emotions, talks about emotions going viral. You know, I would question some of the science behind that and the, the exactness of it. If, if, we, if we all knew how to make things go viral, everything would go viral. There's an immense amount of that accidentality about it all. So I think you are really kind of well-placed to be innovative and creative. And doing a bit of futurology here, mate. <laughs> it seems to me that content creation is the real future there. What, what is going to be created in terms of content to attract people? I think, you know, something like journalism needs to be kind of reinvented mm. in that sense. Because as the economic model we've been working with for the last, you know... 100 years ago, isn't working on social media. So it's young people are going to have to kind of innovate in that sense. I, I fully agree with you that, you know, we have to keep reinventing ourselves. 
reinventing our systems and just going with it. And I agree that social media definitely is the future and young people are definitely taking charge of it. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. We had such a fun time listening to you. I mean, we could do this all day, but there are time limits to this. So thank you so much, Tony, for making time to be with us and for coming on to our podcast. We hope you had fun, as much fun as we did. We really learned a lot today. Until next time, it's goodbye.